New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Today, I'm hosting Dr. Neil Thies, a pathologist and a pioneer of adult stem cell plasticity. He's also a philosopher of complexity theory and is the author of Notes on Complexity, a scientific theory of connection, consciousness, and being. I'm speaking with Neil at his home by remote connection. Neil, welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. You know, I'm excited about a scientist and medical doctor and philosopher that in reading the book, uh, Notes on Complexity, you have the confidence in us readers to follow your understanding about how you arrived at complexity theory and, and why it's important in our everyday life. And so... I would like for you to tell us, for a layperson, what is complexity theory and why it matters? <laughs> sure. Um, so uh, as a frame of reference, if some of your listeners have heard of chaos theory, um, which is fairly well known, and fractals and fractal mathematics, the kind of geometry that you see, even if you've never heard of fractals, I'm sure you've seen pictures of them. If you Google the word, you'll see them. Uh, complexity theory is sort of what came next. Um, and it's basically a way of understanding how if you have entities of one kind or another, whether it's human beings or birds in a flock or ants in a colony or cells in a heart, that the way they interact with each other locally gives rise to larger scale structures that appear as though someone had planned them. But in fact, no one planned them. They arise bottom up. So in the ant colony, people often say to me, well, doesn't the queen ant organize the colony? No, she doesn't. She really is very limited. She serves a reproductive function. There's no one deciding where the food lines go, where the cemetery goes, where the dump for refuse gets taken. Um, this all arises from local interactions. People have a sense of this themselves. You know, one example I often use is walking down the street, a crowded street on the way to work in the morning, and everyone's busy thinking their own thoughts. And yet somehow we order ourselves so that we're not tripping, falling and bumping into each other. We get to street corners, we stop. It's not just because the signal tells us to stop walking. Most of us aren't even looking at the light. And yet we know to stop. There are subtle signals we're giving to each other that help us self-organize. This is important to me because it not only gives a sense of how humans organize into societies and cultures, but it's a way the whole universe organizes itself. And so we've already said that communities are these things, ant colonies are these things that seem to be real. And yet when you look closely, you see that the colony doesn't exist. It's merely ants moving around. And from my medical studies, I know that if you go to the microscopic level, neither our bodies walking down the street nor the bodies of the ants are real entities, solid structures. They're just phenomena arising from cells interacting with each other. 
And cells also, only from one perspective, look like real things. But at a lower scale, they're just atoms that are self-organizing into molecules, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down to the quantum realm. And so what complexity theory shows is that no place in the universe can we find anything that is an actual thing in and of itself. And those tiniest things that you find at the quantum realm, they're just coming in and out of space-time. And so that there's nothing solid. We think of the universe as this solid place in which we live, that we walk on this solid Earth. But the fact is, everything is process. Everything is phenomenon. The question is, where does space-time itself comes from? And there are different ways to think about this. A lot of people will say that that's the fundamental stuff out of which the universe arises, giving rise to our brains, which give rise to our minds. But some of the greatest philosophers in Western philosophy, starting with Plato, but also talking about, um, well, I could go into a whole list, um, but also Buddhist contemplatives, Jewish mystics, Christian mystics, all look within at the nature of mind and find that that's what comes first. And I think that the whole complexity theory viewpoint is completely compatible with that. And complexity allows us to explain how consciousness, pure awareness, is what comes first. And out of that arises space-time and matter and energy and the quantum foam and atoms and molecules and our living bodies and our planets and our universe. Complexity gives me a way to weave everything I believe in practice into one sort of seamless whole. Oh, you just gave us a whole seminar <laughs> in, in <laughs> five minutes. It was really wonderful. Thank you. And I remember years ago when I first met my partner, Michael Toms, who is now passed on, uh, right away, early on, he was telling me, Justine, this table isn't really solid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, and yeah. I was going, well, what are you talking about? I, wait a minute, I, you know, I can... But um, when we talk about, let's say, complexity theory in relation to what is the the cultural bias of science mm -hmm. right now, materialistic science, it's a reductive kind of science that the sum of the parts make up the whole. So you can predict certain outcomes. But I think with complexity theory that there's a, a, a probability or there's a possibility, but you can't really discern um, the outcome. You can't be assured of, okay, it's because of this and this and this, this right. will follow. Mm -hmm. Am I correct so, in that? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we talk about Newtonian mechanics. We think about going back to Newton, that if we knew what every single particle in the universe was doing at any given moment, we could predict everything else like clockwork. What we learned from complexity theory is that the universe is not structured like that. For that to work, the universe would have to be a machine with no variability in it. But what complexity theory teaches us is that for things to be alive, they are able to be alive and sustain their lives because they can adapt to a changing environment. And the source of that adaptation is that there's always a little variation. If every human in a community or every ant in an ant colony was interacting with others with complete reckless abandon, you would have no community, you'd have no culture, you'd have no colony. 
At the same time, if everyone always interacted in precisely the same way, if there was suddenly, let's say, a pandemic, you wouldn't be able to change your behaviors to find a new way to survive the pandemic. You'd still be going out into the streets the way you did every day because you wouldn't know you had an option to stay home and stay safe and to limit the spread that way. So there's one example. So there's always got to be a low-level randomness that's referred to uh, sometimes as quench disorder. And that means because there's always this low-level randomness, the universe can never be machine-like. Our bodies are never machines. And so it's not predictable. What you can predict is that our bodies will interact with other bodies to self-organize and give rise to larger scale structures. But what the nature of those structures are, you can't predict. Um, you can predict that there will be creative solutions to any situation that may allow adaptation and survival. Not always, because some randomness actually leads to collapse. We had a pandemic. And now we find our social structures have reorganized in new ways that we're just starting to explore. But we survived, and now new structures are arising creatively in our new society post-pandemic. All life is like that. The universe is like that. There are a lot of people who are saying that artificial intelligence, we can actually create a life form that way that's going to be creative and so forth. And what's your comment about AI? Well, that's a materialist perspective, or at best, a panpsychist perspective, which means the universe interacts with itself to create mind. The brain makes mind, um, or cells interacting make mind. Um, I'm taking the inverse view, that mind is what makes the universe. And so artificial intelligence, yeah, you might have artificial intelligence, machines that can do very sophisticated calculations, but that doesn't mean they're going to be aware of what they're doing. They're not going to have an experience of pride that I'm doing this calculation. We might be able to program them to mimic what we take as being a prideful statement, but that isn't consciousness. So I think of the brain as a very sophisticated kind of, you know, the way radios take in radio waves and turn them into something we can hear, music, the brain takes the universal consciousness and turns it into our personal minds of each of us. Or if you're a bee, the mind of a bee. Or if you're a crocodile, the mind of a crocodile. Or an ant, or, or, or. So the mind is what comes first. And what we experience depends what kind of transducer we are. That's what's important about the structure of our brains. But the mind isn't coming from that. The mind is being experienced through that. So the mind is not the brain. The mind is not the brain, but the brain is made of mind. Uh -huh. Something I think about is what we have to figure out is if the universe arises from mind, if space, time, matter, and energy, and everything that arises from that is made of mind, comes from mind, then when you have a brain that transduces our personal minds, what's that like? And the closest thing I can come up with is, well, what if you were to have a radio made of radio waves? That's what our brains are. It's like a radio that's made of the waves it's actually transducing, which is a trippy, I don't know where to go with that. <laughs> it's a trippy question. The word that comes to me, it's immaterial. 
it's not material. It's material. Yeah. There is no materiality to anything. There are views from which the world appears material. At this ordinary, everyday level of scale, you and I are separate beings bounded by our skin. But if you hug me, we're going to share our microbiomes, and I'm going to walk away with some of your bacteria. You're going to walk away with some of mine. I don't know if this is true. I've heard this said, and I've looked for a source. I haven't found it yet. But that a human heart, a living heart, can entrain its beating to electromagnetic field. That, to me, is believable on its face. Um, but being electrical, hearts generate electromagnetic fields. So hearts electromagnetically next to each other are entraining to each other. They're interacting with each other. Neither is the same once they come into each other's fields. So what's the separation between self and other there? What happens when you're lying next to someone for hours every night, year after year or decade after decade? And your hearts are used to bathing in each other's electromagnetic fields. That's real. That's real. So everything is interwoven in this sense. And again, that's not just a spiritual, oh, everything is one kind of thing. No, that's heart science. Things are not separate from each other. Right. It's our views that make them separate. I'm going to read something that I just sort of transpose from your book and just shorten it. You have a whole list of these, but I just made them into small chunks of, of words that I put together from what you had written. And you wrote, you are this body, these molecules, these atoms, these quantum entities, the quantum foam the energetic vacuum space-time, the fundamental awareness out of which all things emerge, this very body and mind, this is the transcendent reality. All this is never somewhere else. It is this body, this moment. Most modern sciences and philosophies confirm such perception to be accurate and true. I love that. That's where you're really taking it to that other level of existence. You know, more casually, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I was not always a very good scientist. I was okay. Um, but I didn't get great grades in the sciences. I mean, I was a nerd. You know, I love this stuff. But um, uh, And in my early medical career, I was a good academic, but I wasn't doing anything particularly exciting. And then something happened around 1998, 99, where it just changed. And I started seeing things and putting things together in a rush that hasn't stopped and has sometimes unnerved me. And I look back and I think, what happened? And I think what happened is I'd been meditating for 10 years. And it works. It changes the way one thinks. And I think my cumulative practice sometime around my late 30s, early 40s started to pay off in terms of how I did science and could think about things. I started functioning at a completely different level. And I don't know why that happened, but my suspicion is it was because of the meditating. I'll tell you something. What what gave me the nerve to, to write the book, I didn't really want to write this book at all. I wanted to write a different book about my mother, actually. But I've been talking about this stuff for 20 years as it started occurring to me. 
you know, it's a little intimidating. And what I keep emphasizing to people is it's short, it's small, the type font is big, you know. The point of the book isn't that someone's able to come away from the book and speak the book. But when I give these talks, it basically is the book version of the talk. When I give these talks to people, including I've talked to my nephew and when he was in fifth grade, had me come to his classmates. I didn't change any of the language or dumb it down for them or yogis or stem cell bio grad students. It doesn't matter who I talk to. Light bulbs are going off in the room. Everyone's light bulb is at a different time and about something else. And the questions I get when it's over, often they're things I never thought of. Uh, um, and even if they are, it's different for everybody. Yeah. And what I hope for the book is that if people pick it up, even if they only read you know, one or two chapters, there'll be light bulbs that they'll go, oh, yeah. I've always wondered about that. Or, right. oh, yeah, that was my intuition. But now right. you know, I'm starting to get confident now that people are reading the book that maybe it's going to accomplish that. But no one needs to read this book. There's no quiz at the end. <laughs> no, no one's going to come away from this and know the entire thing. You know, that was my job. But you're so right. You know, when I looked at it and I thought, uh oh, notes on complexity. And I I went to the very back and I said, oh, 173 pages. And hey, that's doable. I can read this. And you just held my hand all the way through. Thank you so much for all that you bring to us, Neil, and how you view life from all of your experience as a medical doctor and as a philosopher and as a practitioner of Zen Buddhism and growing up Jewish. Just so much richness that you brought to us in this one volume, which is Notes on Complexity, a Scientific Theory of Connection, Consciousness, and Being. So I want to let our listeners know that I've been speaking with Dr. Neil Feast, a pathologist and author of Notes on Complexity. And to find out more about his work, you can go to his website. It's neilfeastofficial.com. And he spells his name N-E-I-L, Neil Feast, T-H-E-I-S-E, neilfeastofficial.com. Dot com, Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org, where you'll find over 1,800 programs in its archive. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I want to thank you for joining us at the New Dimensions Cafe, and I invite you, please do join us again. You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a thousand hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.